Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. From our New York office, we have Ben McClenahan, our U.S. banking editor, and uh, U.S. financial correspondent, Alistair Gray. And also our guest from the IMD Business School in Lausanne is Professor Jennifer Jordan, who uh, is Professor of Leadership and Organisational Behaviour. This week, we'll be discussing the latest developments at Wells Fargo in the US uh, as a mis-selling scandal emerges. Secondly, we'll be looking at the Bank of England's very generous pension scheme. And finally, about how computers are being used to hire staff at Deutsche Bank. First, let's go over to Ben in New York on that Wells Fargo story. Uh, So, Alistair. Wells Fargo, the world's biggest bank by market cap, was fined uh, last week $185 million. And that includes a record $100 million fine by the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Wells was supposed to be the most uh, wholesome bank in America. Pretty much stayed above the fray amongst all those huge fines for mortgage um, securities, mis-selling and LIBOR manipulation, FX manipulation. So what's going on? All the way back in 2013, there was an investigation published by the Los Angeles Times that reported on allegations from former employees who were complaining about really intense pressure to meet their sales goals, things like, you know, hourly conferences on targets. If you don't meet your goal, you're supposedly chastised and embarrassed in front of dozens of managers in your area, according to former branch managers and that led apparently to staff doing things like begging their friends and family to sign up even forging signatures uh, opening unneeded accounts it led the city of LA to file a lawsuit and ultimately national regulators to intervene but what's emerged now is the scale of it which has surprised people yeah literally millions of, of accounts that were created out of thin air As many as 2 million bank accounts and credit cards uh, were apparently created without um, the customers knowing anything about it. 5,300 employees lost their jobs because of it. According to regulators, at least, it's not fair to characterize this as as kind of rogue uh, employees. 5,000 of them? No. It's a lot of rogues. Although Wells actually says that that's um, equivalent to um, 1% of its branch workforce over over the five-year period that's that's 5,300 people that's a lot of people <laughs> admittedly over over five years uh they say that because of staff turnover and things that's that's equivalent to one percent of the workforce the, the branch workforce over the period but i mean however you look at it yeah it's clearly a lot of people was this uh, a victimless crime i mean how much do people actually suffer if you're creating a, an account that doesn't exist if you're shuffling a bit of money and then you close it a few days later just to hit a sales target Who, who's really hurt by that well wells has been as well as been fined 185 million dollars which although it's a significant sum is not in the, the multi-billion league it's all it's also been required to set aside only five million dollars for restitution 
and that reflects really the nature of this scam. It, it, this was more about the employees meeting their sales goals and uh, in some cases being eligible for higher bonuses than scamming customers out of large sums of money. I mean, if you've got a ghost account somewhere, probably unlikely to, to rack up huge fees. Unless you trigger a minimum account balance, right? Which is, which is what's happened. I've spoken to some people who weren't necessarily keen to open an account, but it was sort of packaged as an essential element of doing business with Wells. And then when money was shuffled around a little bit, um, the inadvertently breach of thresholds, and that means you're, you're charged you know, a few dollars here and there. So yeah, they've been required to, to set aside five million dollars um, in restitution payments for this. So that that's um, you know, as you say, pretty small sums, even though the, the conduct is pretty egregious. So what what does it mean for Wells uh, on the morning after uh, this all broke? Uh, the shares they started fine by by lunchtime, down about two percent. That's that's a lot uh, in in market cap terms. It's five billion dollars. So what, what does it mean for Wells? Is, is this a serious threat, do you think, to, to, to their business model? Well, cross-selling has been a really integral part of their um, entire business model for, for many years. They have been seen as the most successful bank um, in convincing customers to take out many products. You know, that could be insurance or, or pension investments or what have you. So the, the big question really is whether this episode will undermine that. And more bullish, optimistic case is that they can make changes. They've already been making changes, um, improve the procedures, improve training for staff to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. The more skeptical, uh, critical cases is, is this has been so important for so long is a more radical strange of uh, strategy required. So is, is this matter serious enough with all these people going over all these many years? And surely the board had an inkling of what was going on here. Does this mean that uh, John Stumpf, who's been CEO and um, chairman for a long time, is, is his position now under threat? Uh, dare I say it? Uh, no, probably not. As we discussed earlier, the sums involved are, are relatively small um, in far as, as the finer restitutions are concerned. Well, the, the wider context as well is still um, among the most pr- profitable companies in the entire sector. It's the only um, big bank that produced double-digit ROE uh, in recent months. Um, it's got high-profile backing from uh, Warren Buffett, um, Berkshire Hathaway, at least for, for now. The big, the big question is really whether he, behind the scenes, makes um, noises about this, given that he's always emphasised how important um, ethics are in business. Well, I'm joined now by Jennifer Jordan, who's Professor of Leadership and Organisational Behaviour at the Business School IMD, Um, Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us. This is a depressing repeat, really, in some ways, of um, mis-selling scandals that we've had at so many other banks over the the past few years. To what extent is this a failure, do you think, of controls by senior management? Or to what extent is is the banking system rotten? Um, I actually don't think it's an issue of controls. I mean, there's there's problems with blaming it on controls. Number one, controls require monitoring, when controls are monitoring, and that requires uh, considerable costs on the part of the bank. And I think the more systemic problem originates in three places. Number one, just in general, the depersonalization of the banking industry. So I'm a social psychologist by training, and I'm actually, by coincidence, I'm visiting a bank here today, and they were telling me that now only 1% of their transactions happen over the counter. And so I was thinking back to you know, my childhood, when I would go into the bank with my parents, they would have a relationship with the teller or their loan officer, et cetera. And it was very much of a face-to-face interaction. And as a social psychologist, I know that as things become depersonalized, 
both on the side of the business and on the side of the customer, we're willing to do things that are more unethical towards those parties, that are less scrupulous, et cetera. Uh, and of course, it's hard to get around, right? We live in a digital era. Things are not happening as much face-to-face, not only in banking, right? And then the loss of trust. So this is certainly a problem with the banking industry. Unfortunately, Wells Fargo emerged from the banking crisis of around 2008 relatively unscathed. So it's a pity that they're now confronting this, right? They were kind of seen as one of the good guys at some point. And then lastly, just setting bad targets, right? So if employees have to open around 2 million fake accounts, there's a problem in the target that were set. So I really don't think it's an issue of controls. I think it's a systemic issue. I also think there was a failure of values-based leadership. So the CEO on their website says, you know, everything we do is built on trust. It doesn't happen with one transaction in one day on the job or in one quarter. It's earned relationship by relationship. And unfortunately, that motto, that value statement was clearly compromised here. So what can a bank like Wells or any other bank that finds itself in this kind of situation do about this in, in practical terms? Because you can't really turn the clock back and and uh, repersonalize relationships, certainly on the scale of, of a Wells Fargo. I mean, we have small banks in, in some places that do do that still. But what can a massive bank do either in terms of changing its business model or perhaps I was going to suggest maybe the the pay structures around, you know, sales targets is obviously a, a part of it, as you say. Well, I mean, the immediate issue that they have to confront is now a crisis issue, right? Repairing the broken trust. So before we're going to think about setting different targets, we need to think how do we win back the trust of our customers, but also, you know, the American people in general. And that has to do, first of all, with making a clear apology and accepting um, accepting responsibility for what happened and also trying to rectify any financial damage and also, you know, financial damage is one thing, but then the, the trust damage and repairing that takes a longer period. So that's one issue, right? And that's the immediate problem that they're dealing with. But then in terms of long term, if I was going to talk to uh, the leaders at Wells Fargo, I would say you need, and I've seen this happen um, not necessarily, I, I don't have examples of clients at banks, but in other um, large organizations where they say, okay, we have a financial target that you need to reach, which, by the way, is realistic. Um, but we also have a values-based target that we need you to reach. So that could be something like you get a bonus for starting one initiative that exemplifies or embodies our core values. And I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth because I said earlier, monitoring takes money, um, requires a lot of money, it requires cost, it requires time. And of course, financial targets, monitoring financial targets with a clear quantitative bottom line is much easier than monitoring something more soft, like are you embodying our values or are you making initiatives that are consistent with our values in your behavior? That's harder to monitor. And that's why organizations, you know, the, the quantitative bottom line is easier. That's why they tend to gravitate towards that. But clearly that's not working. There's problems with that method. Well, as you say, getting yeah. the right model is is very tricky. And I think one thing's for certain, mm-hmm. we're going to see more examples of this kind of misbehavior emerging uh, over the coming months and years. Um, Professor Jordan. I hope uh, not. <laughs> I hope not too. <laughs> Professor Jennifer Jordan, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. So let's go on to our second item. Uh, Caroline, you've been looking at uh, a very interesting development of the Bank of England's pension scheme, where it seems like they're being rather generous with their staff. 
Um, yeah, that's right. Given that we're facing a pensions funding crisis in this country, which has been widely attributed to the Bank of England's policy of quantitative easing, I thought it might be quite interesting to take a look at the bank's own pension scheme, which is often called gold plated and all the rest of it. And anyway, it turns out that it's now 100% fully funded and they've increased contributions to nearly 55% of members' pensionable salary. And that was up from 51.8% in 2014. And these kind of contribution rates would be definitely unaffordable in the private sector. And the reason why this is quite interesting is it looks like the Bank of England is immune to the policies that are having such a detrimental effect on pension schemes in the private sector. It has a defined benefit scheme in the sense that uh, it's no longer final salary. Uh, about eight years ago, the employees were put on an average of their salary over their career that they would then retire on. But it's, it's certainly still very generous. And defined benefit schemes generally in the private sector, and there's about 6,000 out there in the corporate private sector, are the ones that are most affected, really, by QE. Obviously, the, the other thing to say, I suppose, is that the Bank of England stands out from the broader banking sector. Martin, you've been looking at the pension systems of some of the private sector banks, the, uh, the likes of RBS and Lloyds, which are both taxpayer-backed. I have, yes. And they've both been forced to take action in the last couple of years as they grapple with the uh, deficits in their defined benefit pension schemes. They've both got very large defined benefit pension schemes. RBS earlier this year fast-tracked a £4.2 billion payment to its DBS scheme and changed its pension accounting policy to help plug its shortfall in its pension fund. And that uh, resulted in in a big hit to its reserves, which contributed to the big loss it made last year. Lloyd's, on the other hand, has drawn fire from unions for cutting the cost of its DB scheme uh, two years ago by capping employees' pensionable pay at existing levels, which generated a £1 billion gain for the bank. Um, the other thing to say about uh, banks in the UK and their uh, pension deficits is that whilst the banks do have among the most generous uh, pension Uh, schemes of um, the FTSE 100 companies, they are, by the regulator, they are forced to hold capital against the risk of their pension schemes uh, and the deficits that they have there. So in a way, they are kind of covered uh, if if there is, um, you know, problems in those pension schemes. Back to the Bank of England, Caroline, what are the messages that this whole debacle sense. Is there going to be any rebellion over it or is it just going to fizzle? Well, I think certainly Ros Altman, who was the former UK pensions minister, has already spoken out quite strongly against it and some uh, MPs as well. I mean, I think there's just a sense that um, the Bank of England is perhaps being a little tin-eared about what's going on in the wider economy uh, whilst increasing contributions to its own employees. It doesn't do much to address that issue of the elite of London being seen to be disconnected from the rest of the country, which I know is something that the Bank of England uh, is theoretically very worried about, but uh, in practice perhaps not. Let's move on to the final topic for this week. Laura, you've been doing some very interesting research into a recruitment tactic at Deutsche Bank, the use of artificial intelligence to screen candidates for, for jobs. 
So what um, Deutsche Bank have been doing in the, in the States this year for part of their corporate and investment bank is that instead of using the traditional US recruitment model for investment banking jobs, which basically relies heavily on sending teams to onto the campuses of the top Ivy League schools and then going to interview students there, instead of that, Deutsche are using a new technology to basically screen a far larger group of students. So they will be screening tens of thousands and they'll be screening them not just in terms of their academic performance, which has really been the traditional screening point, but they've also done this quite innovative thing where they've got a behavioural profiling model made up. And what they're basically trying to see is how well the behavioural makeup of these new graduates matches the best performing graduates who are already at the bank. So I think that's kind of the key thing that makes it different to a lot of these initiatives because often you see people and they actually start out and say, well, we think people who are going to be team players are going to do well. We think people who are analytical are going to do well. And they kind of start off with a a list of the desirable attributes. In the case of Deutsche, it's purely evidence-based. So what they do is they go in, they get all of their existing juniors to take these tests. They then see which of the characteristics do the people who are actually at the top of their area, which of those characteristics do they have? So if it turns out that actually people who are strong for teamwork are in the bottom 10%, then in that case, Deutsche wouldn't seek people who were strongest for teamwork. So it's an interesting approach to do it on a much more evidence-based way rather than doing it on a theoretical, how do we want the bank to look way. And is there a risk that people end up being carbon copies of each other? Yeah, so that was one of the things that we talked about with the bank. And they basically said that they thought that they weren't too concerned, but they thought that the overall payoff far outweighed that risk. So in terms of the payoff, one of the biggest things they see is because they're working with this analytical company, any student who wants to apply to Deutsche Bank has to do the digital profile first. But they're also able to screen from about 30,000 CVs that the outsourced company, Coru, which is the company doing the profiles, that they already have in their database. So they see massive benefits through hiring a more diversified pool because so you end up with people who have similar behavioural tendencies but they have different disciplines so you could see a similar behavioural makeup for someone who had done IT someone who had done English Lit and someone who had done maths so you end up with a far bigger variety of background from a socioeconomic perspective than you do from the existing model because you will, if you go outside of the Ivy League schools, you'll have people coming from a different mindset. So you'll get diversity in that sense. It's obviously totally blind on things like um, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all that. It's obviously totally blind on. So you'll get some kinds of diversification, but that is one of what I think the idea of having people who think too similarly is certainly a danger that the bank and the other employers who do use this technology will be mindful of. Will it catch on? It's already catching on, actually. So I've had questions from various other bankers within other banks asking me for information about this and how Deutsche do this. And I've also been reached out to by several other companies who are offering various analytical tools that they say can also help you tap into a broader range of talent. So yes, there are two different trends here. One is the idea of behavioural profiling and the other is the idea of really harnessing technology to tap into a broader talent pool. I think certainly harnessing technology for a broader talent pool, that is something which is going to become in the mainstream for not just banking, but for every industry. In terms of the behavioural piece, people go about it differently so there are people concerned about hiring too many people of of the same type there's also the evidence-based so Deutsch's whole concept and the whole concept of how the core profiling works is that the people who did well here in the last decade will have the same behavior makeup as the people who do well here in the next decade that may not be true 
the characteristics which would have made you a good performer in the last five years may not endure. I think that's the part that hasn't been tested. And that would be even more true of those who were there before 2007, I suspect. But uh, we'll... <laughs> the world we'll, does change. Indeed. Thank you very much for that, Laura. Uh, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura, Martin and Caroline here in the studio, uh, Ben and Alistair in New York, and also our guest from the IMD Business School, Professor Jennifer Jordan. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Alex Wisniewska and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover... Who was their best mentor? What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.